Hey, good morning. Uh, welcome. I'm Jamie Borchik. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Park, and it is a joy to have you with us this morning. Thanks for coming out and joining us today. I especially want to say welcome to you if you are just joining us here at the start of the new year, if it's your first time visiting with us. We're grateful that you're here. Uh, we hope that you'll, uh, you'll find a warm welcome here and you will make this your church home. Uh, so I want to give a shout out to a number of college students who are here today. Uh, your college years are a great time to plug in with the local church. And we want to be a great church home for you as well. And so thanks for being here. Thanks for joining us for worship this morning. If you've got a Bible, you can find 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Um, we are in a series where we're studying through Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. And uh, one of the major theme, the, the major theme of this letter, as we've been studying it since the fall, is this question of whether you're being shaped more by the culture or more by the cross. Being shaped more by the culture or more by the cross. That's the overarching theme. And uh, right before Christmas, we finished a section of this letter that immediately felt super relevant, right? Paul spent the bulk of three full chapters dealing with sex and relationships, uh, topics that are so prevalent and right up in our face day to day in our lives here in the world today. So it felt super relevant. But today we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and we enter a section that immediately feels super irrelevant, You might have a heading in your Bible if you're looking at it. You might have a heading that says food offered to idols or something like that. And so let me just give you some context. Before we read it today, I want to give you some context and just set this up a little bit. So in Corinth, in the first century world, as in much of the ancient world, there were temples all over the place dedicated to all kinds of gods and goddesses from the pagan pantheon of deities. If you've studied Greek or Roman mythology, all of those gods and goddesses that you studied about, they weren't seen as myths back then, but they were seen as real gods and real goddesses who really affected the day-to-day affairs of human beings. And so people who worshipped those gods and goddesses, they built temples to them. And they'd go to those temples and they would worship those gods and goddesses by offering sacrifices to them, offering animals as sacrifices. And when you offer an animal as a sacrifice, do you know what you get at the end of that process? You get a whole lot of meat. You get a whole lot of meat. And so the meat from those sacrificed animals, it would be taken and it would be served in homes or it would be sold in the marketplace for consumption. And because there were so many temples where these sacrifices were happening, most of the meat that would be available in the city would be meat that had previously been sacrificed to an idol. And so if you were hungry for a steak or if you wanted a burger or if you were invited for dinner at one of your neighbor's places or if your office served lunch uh, in the middle of the day, most of the meat that would be on the table would have been food offered to idols. You'd be dining on Apollo steaks or Aphrodite burgers. That's just what the meat was. And that raised a huge question for the Christians in Corinth. Can we eat it? Can we eat it? Like this food has been part of the worship of gods and goddesses who we no longer worship. And so is it tainted? Is it dangerous? If I eat it, am I saying that I'm worshiping those gods and goddesses? Can we eat this meat? Huge question. Now there are some things in life that are very black and white for us, like where it's easy to know what's right and what's wrong. But the Corinthians did not know how to handle this particular situation. They didn't have a clear playbook on this one. And so this would fall into the category of what we today might call a gray area. Now, let me ask you this question. 
Have any of you ever been offered, been invited to eat food that has been offered to an idol? Has anybody ever had that experience? Jason. <laughs> so, yeah. So, so this is not the kind of situation that most of us ever encounter in the course of our day-to-day lives. And so on the surface, what Paul is writing here seems super irrelevant. And yet the reality is that all of us face gray areas every single day of our lives. Let, let me give you a few examples. Should I watch a particular show or movie? Can I listen to explicit music? Can I binge on a series on Netflix, spend a whole weekend or a whole day watching a show, a series on Netflix? Is it okay to make out with my boyfriend or girlfriend? Should I drink alcohol in a particular setting? Is it okay to have that person over to hang out late at night, just the two of us? What should I wear to the beach or to the gym or to that party? How should I vote? Can I take this job even though I don't agree with all the ethics of the company? Can I skip church to go to or to go watch the Bears game? Not that anybody's actually asking that question at this point in the season anymore, but, but theoretically, could I do that? These are all examples of what you would call gray areas. The answer to most of these questions is, it depends. And these things happen all the time. This is, life is full of gray areas like that. Where the answer isn't a clear yes or no, but it depends on context and nuance and and there's wisdom required. And so this text today is super relevant for us because in it, Paul gives us a framework for dealing with those kind of gray area issues. What does it look like to follow Jesus and to be faithful when the answer is not black or white? What do you do in the gray areas? That's what this text is all about. So let's read it together, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and then we will pray. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist." However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food is really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat. We are no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple... Will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brother 
and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. The word of the Lord. Father, thank you for your word. I ask now that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Speak to us through this, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So in this text, Paul gives us a principle, a truth, and a posture. A principle, a truth, and a posture. First, the principle. So some of the Corinthians were all about knowledge. In verses 1 through 3, the word know appears in some form six different times. And in verse 1, Paul quotes from a letter the Corinthians had written to him, you see this in, in quotation marks, where they had said to him, all of us possess knowledge. So you might say that these Corinthians had a bit of know-it-all syndrome going on. Anybody know anyone who's a know-it-all? Anybody know anyone like this? Like Lucy in the Peanuts comic strips of old, or like Gildroy Lockhart in the Harry Potter books, or like some of your family members, perhaps, that you spent time with over the holidays. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Know-it-alls? Okay. Well, look at how Paul Look at how Paul responds to the spiritual know-it-alls in Corinth. He says, this knowledge that you have, this knowledge you claim to have, it puffs up, but love builds up. So do you see this right here? Anybody know what this is? This is a balloon. And watch what happens here, okay? Okay. Okay, so you see this? The knowledge the Corinthians had was doing this to them. It was puffing them up. It was causing them to become inflated with spiritual pride. So they were thinking, hey, I am better than you. I'm better than you because I know more than you. They're becoming puffed up. And this is not an uncommon phenomenon in the Christian life. So I remember when I was back in college, I was a new Christian, and I just started learning some basic theology. Like, I'm trying to grow in my faith, I'm reading some books, I'm trying to, trying to grow. And I'd become part of this great Christian community on my campus. I'd made Christian friends, and I'm hanging out with them. And one of the things that would happen pretty frequently in those circles was some, the name of some other Christian person would come up. It might be a, another person involved in the ministry, it could be a pastor, a big-name pastor, a local pastor, but, but like, the name of some other Christian comes up in conversation. And one of the questions that would then get asked would be the question, well, is that person solid? Is that person solid? And what was meant by that was, was does this person know what we know? Does this person agree with our obviously right theology? Because I'm 21 years old, and I've read one book by John Piper, so obviously I know everything, right? So, so, so do the, does this person agree with me, Right? And if, if someone disagrees with me, well, then they just don't really know what they should know. You know what I'm saying? So knowledge has a tendency to puff up like that. You learn some things, and those things have a tendency to inflate you. But look at the contrast Paul makes in verse 1. He says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And the word build up there, it means exactly what it sounds like. It's a construction word. So love, or knowledge, does this. But love, it does this. It builds strong, sturdy structures. It builds people into people who are going to last, or are going to be strong and sturdy for a long time. 
In the words of, uh, of one commentator, Andrew Wilson, to paraphrase him, knowledge makes your ego bigger, but love makes your brothers and sisters bigger. Knowledge makes your ego bigger, but love makes your brothers and sisters bigger. Paul continues in verse 2. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. So as soon as you start puffing into this balloon, as soon as you start boasting in your knowledge, it's a clear indication of how little you actually really know. But verse 3. If anyone loves God, he is known by God. Now, there's a twist in this verse. Do you see it? When you get to verse 3, in light of what Paul's been saying, what you would expect is, if anyone loves God, he knows God. Right? Like, if you love God, then you have right knowledge. And that's true. Like, like the purpose of right knowledge is to love God. But that's not what Paul says. What Paul says is, if anyone loves God, he is known by God. See, Paul flips the script. He puts the emphasis on God knowing us rather than on us knowing about God. And you know what Paul is doing with this little twist? What he's doing is this. He's bursting the balloon of our spiritual pride. And you're welcome for that. Just woke y'all up. But he's bursting the balloon of our spiritual pride. Because it is not our knowledge about God that ultimately matters. It is God's knowledge of us, and in response, our love for God and our love for others. That's the point. That's what's most important. Does anybody remember the first and greatest commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's the point. You see, there are plenty of people in the world who can tell you true information about God. You can fill libraries with informational books that have been written about God by scholars who do not necessarily know God and love God. But the purpose of informational knowledge about God is always relational knowledge of God. The purpose of informational knowledge about God is always relational knowledge of God. The point is not just to know things about God, it is to love God and to love others. And so here is the guiding principle for the gray areas at the outset of this passage. Love is greater than knowledge. Love is greater than knowledge. But that then raises a question. If that's the case, does knowledge matter at all? Does knowledge matter? And that brings us to the truth. In verses 4 through 6, Paul shares a truth that is, in fact, essential to know. In verse 4, he quotes the Corinthians again, and this time he does so approvingly. So we're back to the topic of food offered to idols, and Paul quotes them to express his agreement on two points of knowledge. First, an idol has no real existence. So there are idols all over the city of Corinth, but Paul says that those idols are fictions. They are not real gods. They are make-believe gods. They're imposters. They're pretenders. They're as godlike as this balloon. Because, and this is the second point, there is no God but one. Now, this quotation here is a clear reference to the foundational statement of faith for God's people throughout Old Testament history. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, God spoke to the Israelites and he said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And this verse is known as the Shema, which comes from the Hebrew word for hear at the beginning of it. And from the time of Moses down to the present day, like right now, if you were to go into Westridge and go, go visit Orthodox Jewish families over there, right down to the present day, faithful Jews around the world have recited this verse every morning and every evening to confess and remember who God is. This is found absolutely foundational for the Jewish people. And the Shema tells us that there are not lots of gods, there are not many gods, there is one God and only one God. This is an absolutely fundamental truth. And Paul then elaborates on that truth in verses 5 and 6. In verse 5, Paul notes the prevalence of so-called gods in the world. He says, indeed, there are many gods and many lords. Now, he does not mean that these gods and lords are actually capital G gods. He's simply noting that there are lots of different religious beliefs in the world. So you could have walked the streets of ancient Corinth and you could have come to dozens of different temples around the city. Just as you can walk the streets of modern Chicago and you can come to dozens of different places of worship around the city. Like from here, from right here, right now this morning, you could literally walk to several Islamic mosques and Jewish synagogues. You could walk to a handful of Buddhist temples and a few Hindu temples. You can walk to a Jehovah's Witness Kingdom Hall and a Church of Christian Science. And if you're really ambitious, you could walk on up Sheridan Road all the way to the Baha'i Temple. Right? You can also visit several psychics and you can buy crystals and charms and spells from a number of magic shops nearby in the neighborhood. There's a full-on buffet of religious options at your disposal right here in our community. There are many gods and many lords. And yet, verse 6, for us there is one God. When Paul says yet for us, He does not mean only for us, in the sense that what's true for us is true for us, and what's true for others is true for others. Paul's not endorsing relativism here. Hello. Uh, Paul is not endorsing relativism here, just to be really clear. He's not saying that, that those are, in fact, other gods, and you can pick and shoot. He's not doing that. No, it's actually the opposite. What Paul's doing is he's affirming that there is such a thing as capital T truth. And he's saying that Christians actually know that truth. For us, we know that there is one God. We know the truth. Now zoom in on verse 6 with me. Because verse 6 is loaded. Verse 6 is one of the most significant verses in the entirety of the Bible. I'm not exaggerating on this. It is so crucial. So look at what Paul does in this verse. He says, There is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. So ancient pagans divided up the world between their various gods and goddesses. So you had a sun god and a rain god and a sex god and a war god and all kinds of other gods. But Paul here says, no, there's actually only one god and he's responsible for everything in the world. We came from him and we live for him. He is our origin and he is our objective. He is the source of life and he is the summit of life. Everything is his and life is all about him. This is the Shema. This is the foundational truth. But then Paul does something radical. He does what no faithful Jew before him ever would have done. What Paul does here in verse 6 is he adds to the Shema. He adds to the Shema. He says there is one God and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist. 
So in the same breath where Paul speaks of the Father as the one God, he calls Jesus Christ the one Lord. Paul takes the language of the Shema and he inserts Jesus into that formula. He places Jesus on the throne of the universe as the Lord over all. He puts Jesus on the same level as the Father in the very identity of God. So just as all things come from the Father, all things come through Jesus. Jesus, too, is the source of all things. And he is our source. That final line in verse 6, through whom we exist, it's a reference to the new life that we receive when we believe in Jesus. Christians exist in the first place because God made us. But we exist for eternity because Jesus has saved us. We exist through him. And so verse 6, what it is, is it's a New Testament Shema. It's a New Testament Shema. It is a foundational Christian statement of faith. And as such, it distinguishes Christianity from every other faith and religion and belief system on the planet, both ancient and modern alike. Because on the one hand, it says there is one God and only one God. So it rules out atheism, which says there is no God. And it rules out polytheism, which says there are many gods. And it rules out pluralism, which says it's up to you to decide how many gods you want there to be. And at the same time, on the other hand, it says that Jesus is God, which rules out Judaism and Islam, which both deny the divinity of Christ. And so this verse sets Christianity apart by centering everything on Jesus. And you need to know today that Christianity is centered on Jesus. If Jesus is God, then Christianity is true with a capital T. And there are massive implications for the world in general and for your life in particular. If he's not God, then you're wasting your time by being here this morning. But if Jesus is God, then this is, then it really matters. Like this is the most important truth in the universe and you need to line your life up with it. And so if you're here today and you're considering this Christianity thing, if you're thinking about this Christianity thing, what you need to do is you have to look at Jesus. You have to start with Jesus because he is the central thing. Everything else about the Christian faith is secondary. Jesus is primary. So read the gospels, research the history, check out Jesus and see what you think because everything hinges on him. And this is the truth that Paul gives us here. There is one God and Jesus is God. And this is knowledge that you absolutely must have. So Paul has told us here, That love is greater than knowledge. And he has affirmed that there is knowledge that you absolutely must have. And what he does in the rest of this passage is he merges that principle and that truth together into a posture. And it's the posture that we need if we are to be faithful in the gray areas. If we are to follow the truth and live a life of love. Now look at verse 7. Paul writes, however, not all possess this knowledge. The know-it-alls in Corinth knew the truth, and they knew that idols are not real. But not everyone in the church was a know-it-all. Some in the church, Paul writes, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. So most of the Christians in Corinth, they had come to faith in Christ after spending their whole lives regularly worshiping the idols of the city. 
They had eaten certain foods as acts of worship to a god or goddess that they actually believed in. That was daily normal life for them. And so now that they've become Christians, even though in truth idols are not real, to them those idols are still very much real. And when they eat those same foods they used to eat, it feels internally to them like they're worshiping those idols all over again. And the result is that their conscience being weak is defiled. And that word conscience in verse 7 is important. Your conscience is that little voice inside your head that tells you whether something is right or wrong. So as you approach a line that you know you shouldn't cross, your conscience is that, it sounds alarm bells in your head that says, don't do it. Like, don't go there. Don't do that thing. And then after you cross that line, after you step over it, your conscience is that thing that produces that feeling of guilt in the pit of your stomach that says, man, I shouldn't have done that. That's the role of your conscience. Anybody know what I'm talking about if you had that experience? Okay. Now, Paul talks here about a weak conscience. And the fact is that your conscience can be strong or your conscience can be weak. A strong conscience is a conscience that is aligned with reality. It's a conscience where your internal lines of right and wrong match God's actual lines of right and wrong in the real world. So you feel guilt when you should feel guilt because you actually did something wrong. And when you haven't done something wrong, you don't feel guilty because you haven't done something wrong, right? That's what it means to have a strong conscience. And some of us are strong in our consciences. But I think for many of us, we don't have a strong conscience. We have a weak conscience. Like we don't know when we've actually crossed the line. Many of us feel guilty for things when we haven't done anything wrong. Or we don't feel guilty when we have done things that are actually wrong. Like our consciences don't match up with reality. Our internal lines are crossed. They don't land in the right places. And that was the case for some of these young Christians in Corinth. Even though idols aren't real, internally they had a line there that was saying that idols are real. And so if they ate the idol food, they felt like they were crossing that line. Now, in verse 8, Paul makes clear that food is not the main issue here. Food does not really matter. Food is just food. And if your conscience is strong and you know that food is just food, then you have the right to eat. You have freedom to eat. You can enjoy the food. But look at Paul's counsel in verse 9. He says, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. So Paul says, your rights are real. But your rights are not ultimate. You have a right to eat, but you also have a responsibility to your brothers and sisters in Christ. And your responsibility trumps your rights. Your responsibility trumps your rights. So follow Paul's argument here. He says, don't put a stumbling block in front of the weak. Now, a stumbling block in Scripture is always some sort of obstacle that keeps someone from making it to ultimate salvation. So Paul is effectively warning us against putting a roadblock on the highway to heaven. You're running the race toward Jesus as a follower of Christ. You're a Christian. You're running after Jesus. He says, hey, don't turn around and put up a barricade so that other believers who might not be as strong or as swift or as fast as you, don't put up a barricade so that those folks can't follow after you. Don't do that to them. 
Then in verse 10, he makes the point that other people are watching you. Other believers, other brothers and sisters, they're watching you. They see what you're doing. And if they see you crossing what they perceive to be a line, even if they've got those internal lines in the wrong places, if they see you crossing that line that they think is there, it can be that kind of stumbling block for them. And Paul's reminding you that what you do is not just about you, it's also about them. You have a responsibility to your brothers and sisters in Christ. And if you prioritize your rights over that responsibility, look what happens in verse 11. And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. So that barricade that you threw up, it becomes a spiritual wrecking ball that destroys your spiritual sibling. Verse 12, thus sinning against your brothers and sisters and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Sending that wrecking ball at a fellow believer is sin on your part. And if you wound a brother or sister, you're wounding Jesus himself. Paul is serious about this. And Paul says all of this to underscore the gravity of the gray areas. Gray areas are not gray because they are unimportant. They are gray because they are complicated. But in their complexity, they are eternally consequential. What you watch and what you listen to, how you engage with alcohol, the jobs you take, the way you do politics, what you wear, these gray areas, faithfulness in these gray areas, it matters because your brothers and sisters in Christ matter. And so in light of all of that, look at Paul's posture in verse 13. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will, what's that word? What does he say? I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. The word stumble comes from the Greek word skandalizo. It means something like to set off a trap. Now, when I was growing up, we had this little strip of woods behind my house. And uh, one summer, when I was probably about 11 or 12 years old, me and a couple buddies in the neighborhood, what we did is we, we spent a solid week digging a really big hole in those woods. This thing was like five or six feet deep. We just spent a week digging. That's all we did for a week. We just dug this super deep hole. And it, it, we put water in the bottom and some rocks in the bottom, whatever, but we dug this really deep hole. And then what we did is we covered it up with sticks and grass and we tried to conceal it. Because there was this this other kid in the neighborhood who we didn't particularly like and we spent the next week trying to convince him to come into the woods and lead him over the top of that so that he would fall into it. Okay? Young Jamie. What Paul is saying here is don't do that. Don't do that. He's saying, if something that I'm doing in any way would dig a hole and cause a fellow believer to fall into it, I will never do that thing. You see, Paul knew that love is more important than knowledge. And Paul knew that there is only one God. And because Paul loved his brothers and sisters in Christ and wanted them to really know the one true God, Paul merged his love with his knowledge and the result was this posture where he put others first. He put others first. And do you know where Paul got that posture from? 
He got it from Jesus himself. Because Jesus is God. He is the Lord of all creation. He is the one who made all things. All things are his. He has the rights to do whatever he wants to do whenever he wants to do it. And yet what he did is he came and he laid down his rights and he took up his cross. And he went to that cross and he bore your sin on that cross and he died for you and for me. He went down into the holes that you and I don't have to. And brothers and sisters, that's why we exist. And that is the posture of the one whom we follow. It is a posture of laying down your life for others. Put others first. Before I think about me, I think about you. You know, it's fascinating in this passage that Paul nowhere critiques the weak. He doesn't go to the weak and tell them, hey, you need to get stronger. You need to watch out more for the holes. You need to be more careful. You should know better. No, Paul doesn't do that. Instead, he puts the onus on the strong. It is the strong who have a responsibility to lay down their rights for the weak. And that is the posture that you and I must adopt. Love is greater than knowledge. There is only one true God. And so like our great God, live with a posture of putting others first. Now I want to finish this morning by getting super practical. Because most of us, maybe not Jay, but most of us are unlikely to find ourselves being served food that has been offered to idols. And yet there are all kinds of gray areas that we encounter every day. And so here at the end, I want to give you three questions to ask when you find yourself in a gray area. These are questions I'm borrowing from a guy named Jeremy Treat, who pastors a church in Los Angeles, and I think they are super practical, helpful questions. And so anytime you're not sure what to do, here are three questions to ask to help you think through how to faithfully follow Jesus and put others first. And I'd encourage you to take a picture of this or write this down, okay? So question one is, what does Scripture say? There is such a thing as truth, and your first move should always be to the truth, to the Bible. Though the Bible does not speak to every situation, the Bible speaks to many situations. And there is capital T truth in this book. This book is capital T true. And so start here. Look to scripture first. See what the Bible says about whatever the situation that you're thinking about is. Start here. Second question. What does your conscience say? The more time you spend in scripture, the more your conscience gets shaped to better reflect what God has said is right and wrong in the world. You also have the Holy Spirit living inside you who shapes your conscience. And so your conscience is a precious gift from God. You need to listen to your conscience. You need to pay attention to your conscience. Don't violate your conscience. If your conscience is telling you, hey, there's a line here, don't cross it, then stay on this side of the line. What does your conscience say? And then the third question is how does it impact your community? It's not just about you. It's about your brothers and sisters. It's about the family of Christ. And so you need to think about how the action you're considering will impact the people around you. Will this cause others to stumble? Will I be digging a hole with this action that would cause someone else to fall into it? Or will this build others up? Will this make my brothers and sisters bigger? How will this action impact my community? Church, may we be a people who are shaped less and less by our it's all about me culture 
and more and more by the sacrificial service of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who laid down his rights and laid down his life so that you and I may have life. And if you're here today and you don't yet truly know him, may today be the day where that changes for you. There is a God who made you. There is a God who loves you. And there's a God who wants to save you and wants you to know him forever. Trust in Jesus. Let him give you new life. Let him lift you up out of the hole. Let him give you new life and true life now and forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today. We thank you for your word, which is true. We thank you that you are God. There is only one God and you are that God. And we have the great privilege of knowing you because of Jesus and because of what he has done on our behalf. Oh, Father, I pray that we would be a people shaped by Jesus, that our lives would be centered on Jesus, that we would love you, that we would love your son, that we would love people because of Jesus. Would you shape our lives by the cross a posture of sacrificial service for others? Would that, be, would that be our reputation in our community? Would that be our, our witness to a watching world? Would we lay down our rights for the sake of those around us and consider how things impact our communities? And Father, I pray also today for anyone here, for those who, who may not yet truly know you, would you open their eyes? Would today be the day where they see the truth and beauty of the one true God where they lay down their lives to come after Jesus, to pick up Jesus, to say, I'm gonna follow Jesus. Would you give that new life today? We thank you, we praise you, God. We love you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.